According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again as we turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. We want to present ourselves as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If it's in the truth, I'm accountable. If it's not in the truth, I'm also accountable. I can't add to the Word of God, can't take away from the Word of God. And uh, this is our blessing. What God has revealed belongs to us and our children forever. So uh, let's open with a word of prayer and call upon our Father for humility that we might be subject to the living and abiding Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together this morning. We thank you for freedom that still exists in this land whereby we can meet in a public building with a sign out front and a website telling the whole world who we are and where we are. Father, I thank you for the freedom that allows us to meet and uh, to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And we proudly bear that name, we proclaim that name, and it is in that name, Father, that we stand before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed. So, Father, open the eyes of our understanding and rightly divide the word of truth uh, as you teach us this morning. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are, in fact, pressing on the upward way, and that's the uh, title for this paragraph as we start in verse 12 and take it down through verse 16. Paul had made some statements in uh, verses 7 through 11 that could conceivably be taken the wrong way. And so he tries to, uh, to remedy that uh, with two statements in chapter 12. Not that I have already obtained it, not that I have already become perfect. So don't take what I'm saying the wrong way, is what Paul's saying here. Sometimes you can say something and not mean anything bad by it, but people take it that way. And so Paul says, not what I'm saying, all right? Not what I'm saying. Not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect. And this is, uh, this is key, all right? And those two expressions, obtaining it and being made, becoming perfect, they get combined uh, in the, uh, reaching forward, laying hold to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so that's our focus. That was Paul's focus. It should be all of our focus. If we don't have that attitude, verse 15 is going to tell us, then we are slated for an attitude adjustment. And God is very good at the attitude adjustment. He knows precisely the conditions and the circumstances and the the means by which our thinking can be adjusted. And so we will deal with that as well. We also have a bit of a conundrum to ask ourselves because the verb for becoming perfect in verse 12 is, uh, is linked to the adjective that is stated in verse 15. Let us therefore as many as are perfect. And so that's the reality. We are perfect even while we have not yet been perfected. Even while being perfected continues as an ongoing process. And that's not contradictory. And it is textually problematic. And so it causes folks to look at it and consider what it's saying. But I think it's a beautiful oxymoron. It's a beautiful uh, paradox whereby we approach the unapproachable light. Whereby we fathom the unfathomable riches of grace whereby uh, these things that might appear to be contradictory are, in fact, beautifully true in, uh, in both of their applications. So that's going to be part of what we're going to look at here this morning. Now, if you were with us on Wednesday night, we were 
uh, dealing with these terms in verse 14. And so I want to get right back to that. Because the focus of Paul's pressing forward is described as a goal, is described as a prize, is described as an upward call. And these things are linked together, and it's, it's, there is legitimate grammatical question as to, well, how exactly are they linked together? Is the goal the same thing as the prize? Is the prize the same thing as the upward call? Is it, how is this being phrased? And I believe it's being phrased in a progressive manner, constantly speaking in, in a forward way to communicate the, the, the very idea of pressing on. And so uh, I press on towards the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so it is definitely written in such a way as to lead us segment by segment by segment in an ever forward, ever forward, ever forward way. And I think it's beautiful. I, th- I think it's, uh, it's the, I wish I could write like that. That's uh, it's a marvelous writing style related to this. And so we've talked about the goal. We talked about the prize. This morning I want to deal with the upward call if you missed it on Wednesday, we had some fun with the goal, the skapos, which is a goal or a bullseye, and uh, found that this is the only place in the New Testament that has it, so it's a pretty short word study on that basis. Uh, there are some Septuagint uses whereby it's pretty much used as a target, as a bullseye, if uh, arrows are being fired, and, and both Job and, and uh, Jeremiah felt that, that uh, God was the archer and they were the bullseye, they were the target, and God was just filling them with, with arrows. In, uh, in Job 16 and in Lamentations 3. There's also some extra-biblical literature that uses the term as well in Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha sources, such as uh, the wisdom of, of, uh, of Sirach, uh, which we read from in there in chapter 5. Also in the uh, Epistle of Aristeus, which well, I found just marvelously hilarious for a couple of different applications that were, that were there. But not to repeat any of that, it's sitting on the website if you want to if you want to go get those. The apostolic father uses were also worthwhile, I thought, in First Clement and in Second Clement, and, uh, and uh, worthwhile because they follow uh, our text this morning. They were, they were written in the first century after the book of Philippians and very much shaped by Philippians in, uh, in what Clement expresses there. All right, then the term for prize, the brabeon, the prize. And uh, there's a whole doctrine. In fact, we may, I haven't really settle this yet, we might, might be a good opportunity to take up a doctrinal study, take up a, a, uh, a topical study before we move on, uh, to just center on the prize, to center on what is the doctrine of rewards, what, is, what are the crowns we have to look forward to, what was the expectation Paul had that there was a crown of righteousness laid up for him, and is it, is it wrong to, to, to want to have a crown, is that somehow arrogant, or is it, is it wrong to, to be reaching for the prize? Well, this, this verse here tells us, reach for the prize, that is the goal of the prize, of, of the upward call, and, and then when we get there, what a blessing it'll be to then throw them at his feet. That's an expression. It's a valid term and a concept. Uh, curiously enough, though, um, we're not told whether uh, he leaves them at his feet or not or whether he accepts them or whether he assigns his angels to go ahead and pick them up and, and give them back to you uh, as far as that goes. Because to whom uh, everyone who has, more shall be given. And to the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. And so there are uh, some interesting uh, facets to the inequality of heaven and the scale of rewards that are given. Heaven will not be an equal place, all right? The, uh, that's, a, that's a study all on its own. So we may do that. I haven't decided yet, but 
uh, keep that in prayer. Um, but there is a prize. The prize is a brabeon, used twice. And we realize that, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 9, we don't want to be disqualified, that we want to, we want to be diligent. We want to compete according to the rules. And in the Olympic Games, they're doing it to win an earthly crown. We're doing it to win a heavenly crown. And, uh, but the concept should be there to teach us. And so the idea of a prize, uh, also not only in the New Testament, but in uh, the church fathers. First Clement 5.5 5 had an interesting use of it there, as well as in the martyrdom of Polycarp. I thought that that was a very noteworthy. Um, if, you're not, if you've never read the martyrdom of Polycarp, I recommend it. And uh, just for the, the, the devotional value to it as, as a facet of church history. One of the, one of the earliest uh, records that we have of someone dying for their faith in the New Testament. Also, I think it's useful to understand that this is the verb that's used in Colossians 3.15. That uh, let the love of Christ, as it says, as it says, rule in your heart. Is rule really the best term for that? Colossians 3.15. Uh, well, what kind of ruling is that? Let the word of Christ, or let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Well, what kind of ruling is that? What kind of authority word is that? Is it a word for, you know, sovereignty? Is it a word for dictatorial authority? What, what kind of ruling happens there? Well, it's actually this word for ruling in the sense of a, a, a sporting official, in a judge who is, has a ruling, a sport ruling. He's calling balls and strikes. He's calling, throwing flags. He's, he's awarding the judicial prizes for an athlete. And so as far as ruling is concerned, I think awarding prizes is, is a marvelous way to render this. Let the uh, peace of Christ be the prize awarding judge in your hearts. See, because that's the verb that's there. It's brabuo that's there as opposed to the the noun form there of brabeon. All right, so that's what we covered on Wednesday. This morning, I want to talk about the upward call, the recognition that every one of us has been called, and we're called to eternal life, but we're also called to this upward call. We're called to the experiential outworking of our salvation. We're called to this confession. Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our confession, and we are partakers of a heavenly calling. That stresses our function, our priestly function here on earth. And so we want to be clear on this. Upward call is really two terms, the anoklesaos, the anoklesaos, ano is the preposition for upward, and klesis is a calling. It's the anoklesaos in, uh, in the text here, but it's ano, Strong's number 507, plus klesis, Strong's number 28. 21. And we're going to be careful with it just because it's a term that lends itself to some sensationalism and scandal and argument and, and whatever. And so, you know, particularly uh, of different uh, Calvinistic bents whereby the, the calling and the, the choosing and all these other things get very uh, ferocious uh, very quickly uh, in, in some people's uh, faith. But let's just recognize that for today's purposes, we're talking about our calling, the upward call, whereby we are, each one of us, from the moment of our salvation, we have a course set before us. It's called a race. It's called works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's called the purpose of God for our generation. That's what we're called to do. In, in the exercise of our spiritual gifts, in the pursuit of our ministries, in, in the achievement of the effects that the Father would, would achieve in and through us for His good pleasure. That's our upward call. And we have that from the moment we're saved to the moment He takes us from this world, from the cross to the crown. And we want to be clear on these things. 
And so um, I, I think that for the, to illustrate the idea of upward, uh, a simple place to do that is Colossians 3. This is the passage that we recite in every baptism service. So we'll have one of these coming up. And uh, recognizing that uh, it's, uh, it centers on our thinking. It centers on where our thinking is focused. The same way that Philippians focuses on our thinking. Because it says, therefore, if you have, in first class, assumed to be true, it is true. Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things, the ono things, right? The things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. This is what you're to think on. Think on these things. Be fixated with these things. All right? And this is a blessing. We should be. Um, we have the human capacity and then we have the divine capacity to just lock our minds where we're told to lock our minds. To me, this is a blessing from God. I think humanity was designed to be habitual. Humanity was designed to be regular and consistent and, and faithful day after day after day after day. And God modeled that. When he made creation on day one, two, three, four, five, six, rested on day seven, gave us a pattern. And each step of the way, there was evening and morning one day, evening and morning two days. And and each step of the way, God was laying this pattern out on a consistent, habitual basis, see. And we're designed to be consistent and habitual creatures, worshiping him, loving him, learning his word, living it out, okay, now, I, I grant you, the fall uh, affects that quite a bit. And as sinners, as fallen creatures, uh, the blessings of, of our habitual nature become an addictive nature. And we, become, uh, we can become enslaved to sin patterns. And we can become addicted to substances and, and activities and, and whatnot. But nevertheless, to, to lock our minds in on something. And uh, what, a, what a joy. Okay? So set your mind on the things, the ono things, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so that life, that hidden life, it's, in the, it's at the right hand of the Father. And if you have eyes to see it, you'll see it. But if you don't have eyes to see it, then it's hidden, just as Christ is hidden. And we're waiting for our apocalypsis, just like God, uh, Jesus is waiting for his apocalypsis. Don't be afraid of apocalyptic terminology. It's, it's great stuff. All right. Waiting to be revealed. And when the Son of Man is revealed, when the bride is revealed, creation itself is going to celebrate when, uh, when we are revealed with Him in glory. All right. And so we want to have an upward focus. That's the, uh, that's the application there. It is an upward call. It's not an earthly calling. Everything of earth, the things of earth should grow strangely dim. The things of earth, and that's a hymn, that's not scripture. But still, it's a concept, it's a principle that if we are looking at the things above, if we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things can be added unto us in the proper time, in the proper way. And we accept them for what they are, the other things. Because first things stay first. Now, as far as our calling is concerned, um, I'm giving you a selection of verses here. Uh, recognize that they're used in different ways and hopefully we'll have the discernment to ask ourselves, well, now, which calling is in view here? Is this my calling unto eternal life? Is this my calling uh, whereby I believe in the gospel and I get saved? 
Or is this uh, my calling as a pastor? Is this my calling? Because uh, uh, there's a variety of callings even within an overall ministry calling. So there's a calling as a, as a pastor, but then there's the calling as the pastor of Austin Bible Church, for example. There's subsequent callings in different places in different ways. And so starting with Romans eleven twenty nine, I think we get a good spectrum for the clasis, the calling. Remember, many are called, but few are chosen. And so that's another principle that uh, we won't get into this morning. But it's just something to chew on and consider. Romans eleven twenty nine, And uh, with respect to not getting prideful related to Israel, God's not done with Israel. God is not done with them. They are, for the moment, they are set aside. For the moment, there's a partial hardening. But it's only until, and we're, we ought to be clear on that, and uh, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, these things are, uh, are solid on understanding how the church relates to Israel. But in chapter 11, 29, we're told the gifts and the calling of God are, King James says, without repentance, right? Irrevocable. I like irrevocable. And so we don't, uh, we don't um, get upset. We don't get maladjusted. We don't become anti-Semitic. We don't become dispensationally maladjusted to the present reality of the earthly nation of Israel. Backing up to verse 25 here, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. This is a facet of mystery doctrine that pertains to the church and uh, God's dealings with national Israel, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial, got that? (laughs) Not complete, partial, hardening, has happened to Israel until, got that? It's not forever. (laughs) So if it's partial, it's not total. And if it's until, it's not forever. It is in the meantime. It is for now. And when when the bride is complete, God will resume his plan for Israel. So a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. But do you know what it takes for all Israel to be saved? It takes the church to prompt them to jealousy. It takes the removal of the church to prompt them to urgency. Because when the the church is removed, the restraint is removed. And they will be facing literally hell on earth. They will be facing the wrath of the adversary who is bent on their destruction. They will be facing the opening of the abyss and every demon flooding this earth from the abyss. They're going to be facing an awful lot. But thankfully, 144,000 are going to get saved very quickly. Uh, very quickly post-trumpet, I think very early in the, uh, even, I believe, even prior to the Antichrist signing the treaty, even prior to day one of their 1260 days, that, uh, that those, those Jewish believers are going to uh, get saved and they're going to start functioning in their evangelistic capacity. So a deliverer will come from Zion who will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And, uh, and there you have it. They will have a national salvation. Uh, that uh, they have to look forward to. Why? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That includes, of course, Israel's calling as his earthly covenant nation. That includes our calling as his heavenly people. If you believe in the eternal security of the believer, you've got to believe in the eternal destiny of the Jewish nation. He's not a liar. He doesn't go back on his promises. 
It's an eternal covenant, just as we have eternal life. And so, um, anyway, I think this is, uh, this is useful for us to see that the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. Specifically, that has nothing to do with, I mean, the immediate application is Israel, but we draw our secondary application. Because do we not have gifts? Do we not have callings? Multiple? Of course. Of course. All right, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. More to consider. Consider your calling. That's an order. Think about it. Chew on it. Come to a reasoned consideration. Consider your calling, brethren. Now, which calling is this? I think this is going to be key for us. Um, Early, he was talking about the gospel, talking about the word of the cross as foolishness to the perishing ones, but to us, the being saved ones, it is the power of God. And so we can rejoice in that. And then we get to this calling question. Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And notice there's the link here between the calling and the choosing, right? Because it's consider your calling and then it's God has chosen. God has chosen. So uh, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And so being chosen is no credit to you. (laughs) It's all grace. The calling is in in uh, accordance with that grace. We want to be clear on this. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. So when you consider your calling, just consider whether you are foolish, weak, base, or despised. Those are the four things that are listed there. Or maybe something else that's not listed there that's just as derogatory. (laughs) Because you have been chosen by the grace of God. And you have been called by the grace of God. Many have been called, but few were chosen. Okay, And we have responded to that calling. Again, is that credit to you? Is that meritorious when you believe in the, in the promises? When you accept the free gift? Is there merit in that? Of course not. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. And so I can't boast in my salvation. I can't boast in my uh, spiritual giftedness. I can't boast in my ministry calling. I can't boast in my, uh, uh, you know, hist- uh, my career success with Austin Bible Church. can't boast in any of that. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's, that's here also, verse 31. So consider your calling. It's an upward calling. So keep your eyes upward. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not an earthly calling. And it's not a bell curve. And it's not, you know, comparing yourself to the next guy. And as long as you're better than the next guy, then you're okay with yourself. So God must be okay with you too. It's not how it works. Okay? It's not how it works. So consider your calling. And boast in the Lord. Both by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If I make a claim to righteousness, it's because I'm in Christ Jesus. See? And that's not arrogant. That's not prideful. Had a fellow last Wednesday that thought I was boasting. I was prideful for claiming to be righteous. And I said, I'm righteous, but I'm righteous because I'm in Christ and I have his righteousness imputed to my account. I said, how about you? Are you righteous? He says, no, I'm not righteous. Well, sorry, let me give you the gospel so you can become a believer in Jesus Christ. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said you weren't righteous. Okay? That's the only way to become righteous. And to say so is not prideful. To say so is is humble. To say so is to faithfully proclaim the truth. See? Anyway. (laughs) So, like that. Do I lack madmen that you brought this one to act the madman in my presence? One of my favorite Bible verses. Start to wonder. Yeah, I think I'm deficient. I, I have too few madmen. Let's, let's get some more. There's another calling in Ephesians 1.18. Ephesians 1.18. And uh, in a powerful chapter that talks about our position in Christ. It's a song that sings the glories of God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pronounce blessings upon the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And all these things that He's done for us. One long sentence that goes down through verse 14. And then, for this reason, in verse 15, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. Now, Paul had been there for over three years. Paul had been there for three and a half years. He'd been there, and he'd ministered, and he'd gone through battles and so forth. But then a time came that he went into hiding. And a time came, of course, he had several imprisonments as well. And all he could do was get word, how are they doing? How are they doing? Well, I've heard they're doing all right. They're walking by faith. And they're walking in love for all the saints. And do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, now notice, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. Now this is a well-taught local church. They've been taught by the Apostle Paul for three and a half years. They have other elders there as well. And yet, there are depths they have not been taught yet. And Paul wants them to get to those depths. And Paul prays that Jesus will take them to those depths. And it's going to be another apostle, another pastor, somebody other than him that's going to take that flock to those depths. I believe it's Timothy. I believe it's Timothy, as per 1 Timothy, that he's left in Ephesus and he's taking them to these dimensions of truth. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his clasis. This is the calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness, the hyperbolistic power towards us who believe? This is, these are dimensions of doctrine. This is wealth of blessings that 
that, that Paul's not able to take him into. He's, he's in prison when he's writing Ephesians. He doesn't know if he's he going to be back to teach them at any point of time. So that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. You will know what is the hope of his calling. Now this is the living hope. This is the hope in which we stand. This is the hope that we are to have, we're going to see next hour, where we saw last week in Hebrews, the full assurance of hope, that you have to realize that. That's when you personalize it. That's when you appropriate it. That's when you, it becomes a living reality to you, not just some external, you know, abstract thing. Not some esoteric reality, but a personal realization. Same concept here. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what, what is presently the hope of his calling. What are presently the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is presently the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. This is the fellowship of the resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings. Spelled out here in Ephesians. All right. The calling. How about Ephesians 4.1? The calling. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Conduct yourself in such a manner that's worthy of this upward call. Don't cheapen it. Don't lessen it. Walk in a manner. And he's imploring them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What a text. Down through verse 4, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There's our calling. Okay? In any event, this is what we're dealing with here. And it's interesting to me. Some people have an interesting calling, like going around from church to church and straightening out pastors. <laughs> you know, insisting that you can only teach from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you teach outside of that, you know, you're, def you're in defiance of your calling. Okay. Well, here we go. Philippians 3.14 is where we are this morning. 2 Thessalonians 1.11. 2 Thessalonians 1.11. This upward call. Walk in a manner worthy. And notice, there's adversaries. There's, uh, Paul was telling the Thessalonians that he spoke proudly of them. In verse 4, man, they're doing great. We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So he travels from place to place. He's been to Berea, Athens, Corinth. And everywhere he's gone, he said, man, you ought to get up to Thessalonica sometime and visit Thessalonica Bible Church. <laughs> That's a congregation. Boy, they're true to doctrine. And uh, yeah, there's, there's uh, conflict, there's suffering, but God will repay it. It'll happen uh, at Second Advent. Um, they are going to pay a penalty of eternal destruction. Verse 9, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, 
I don't know why people want to deny the the eternal destruction of hell. It's pretty plain to me. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, to be marveled at among all who have believed. Then verse 11, to this end, also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. See, just getting saved is not the end of his plan. (laughs) That's the start of his plan. That's step one, get saved. Step two, grow. All right? God desires all men to become saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness. Is that your desire or his desire? (laughs) Okay. Every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. You and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man. So yes, we have an upward call. It's a calling we want to be diligent to pursue. It's a calling we want to walk worthy. But it's God's the one that's going to make that happen. He's the one that will count us worthy. He's the one by his grace is going to make this happen. He's the one by his grace who's going to fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Is that going to be our power? Of course not. It's the work of faith. And everything we do, we're going to do by faith. We're going to walk by faith, not by sight. So that the boasting goes to the Lord, not to us. Yeah, pretty simple to me. All right. Second Timothy 1 9. Verse 8 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. You know, um, some folks might point to earthly things that happen and say, there, he's a criminal. Why follow that guy? You know, he's a jailbird. How many times has he gone to prison? Or uh, what are you following him for? You realize how many churches he's blown up? You realize how many schisms he started? Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us, and called us with a holy calling. Separate issues, right? Saving us is just this first step. We've got a whole calling to pursue after that. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Part of his divine decrees, his perfect, the perfect wisdom of his plan that he put forth from before the foundation of the world, from all eternity, didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, But he's got a purpose. He's got a a calling. And, uh, (laughs) you know, if you feel unworthy, you are. If you feel um, like God's made a mistake, Moses thought the same thing. He said, I'm not a good speaker. My brother would be better at this than me. Okay? I understand. He made this choice before the foundation of the world. He made this choice in full foreknowledge and omniscience of who you are and what you are and what you're ready for. And, uh, and he called you anyway. <laughs> so he must know what he's doing. So from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And so here we go. This is what we're called to do from the foundation of the world, but now has been revealed. So when he, Apocalypto, reveals himself, when he opens a door, when he opens a door and opens your eyes to that door, man, walk through. Walk in faith. Rejoice. And uh, realize this has been a long time coming. And if you feel you're not ready, well, you're as ready as you're going to be because here you are. So get more ready and just keep going, right? Walk forward. Walk forward. That's a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, you suffer these things. You're not ashamed. You know whom you have believed. He knows what he's doing. Walk by faith. Finally, then Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. That's us. That's us. So keep our eyes on the things above. That's us. Partakers of a heavenly calling. We should be reaching forward to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if, uh, if we lose our sight of that, if we, if we for a moment or for a season or for whatever reason, we just stop thinking about those kind of things, why is that? Because we took our eyes off of Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so there he is. It's an upward call. It's an upward call. Now this, this truth, I hope we, we recognize how unique this is. This focus is unique to the dispensation of the church. This could not have been written Philippians could not have been written in the Old Testament. Hebrews could have meant none of these. Israel did not have an upward call. The Gentiles did not have an upward call. All right? Even in the angelic dispensation, as weird as this is to think about, <laughs> there were already spirit beings. Many of them were already in heaven. There were terrestrial spirit beings as well on the angelic earth. They didn't have an upward call. We are the stewardship with the upward call. We are the stewardship that by the grace of God have been baptized into personal union with the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who is ascended, the one who is seated at the Father's right hand in victory. Israel was not baptized into union with Christ, seated at the Father's right hand in victory. Gentiles were not baptized in union with Jesus Christ, seated at the Father's right hand in victory. Not the angelic, not the Gentile stewardship from Adam to Abraham. Angels were never baptized into personal union with Jesus Christ. Seated at the Father's right hand. Only the bride. Only the church. This is our unique positional truth to our stewardship. No prior stewardship and no subsequent stewardship. By the way, the tribulation goes back to the stewardship of Israel. The millennium, the stewardship of Israel. Jesus Christ is on the throne, but it remains a stewardship of Israel. The Jewish stewardship to the Gentile nations for the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. No subsequent stewardship. The fullness of time. A thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. They are not baptized in a personal union with Christ as the bride is. We, there's one bride. One bride. One Lord, one bride. Okay? And, uh, you know, as marvelous as the fullness of time is going to be, 
and you just ponder what a thousand generations are like with no sin, no death. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a wonder to behold. And yet, it's not the bride of Christ. So, no prior stewardship and no subsequent stewardship has God the Father awarding prizes to a corporate body in Christ. This is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. En Christo Jesu. Understand the date of case and the whole positional truth realm. Anytime you study in Christ, in Jesus, in Him, in Christ Jesus. That's the upward call. All right. So we have the important doctrine there. And if you want more on that, I can get you some resources. Grace Notes has resources as it relates to positional truth. The whole expression of in Christ is, uh, is vital. And hopefully we're clear on this. All right, now, let's get back to Philippians 3 and center on this puzzle. Let us therefore as many as are perfect. Wait a minute. Paul, you said you weren't perfect. Okay, and, and this is a, it seems to be a contradiction, and yet Paul makes both affirmative statements. He says, I have not already become perfect. And that's the verb from teleao. I have not already been perfected. Teleao. But he does claim to be teleos, the adjective here of perfect in verse 15. And he says he's not alone. He says that several of his readers are right there with him. So let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And this is a beautiful thing. So let's look at it here as point four in the outline. Mature believers. I'll probably use the adjective mature instead of perfect, but it's the same it's the same Greek adjective. I don't know, which do you prefer? Do you prefer mature? Do you prefer perfect? Well, you don't want to make a claim of having been perfected, but you can make the claim of being perfect. As perfect as you are now with more perfection on the way, with the ongoing perfecting still underway, but Scripture says you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And God never gives us a command that's impossible to obey. And so every believer should become perfect while still becoming more perfect as long as we're on this earth. Every believer should become mature to a mature man. Whatever your gift, whatever your ministry, whatever your calling, every believer should be reaching maturity. From babyhood to adolescence to maturity? Is it, you know, do we, do, we, do we chart out the 11 spiritual gifts and say, all right, these gifts can get to maturity and these gifts are going to be babes forever? What do we do? No. You have the gift of helps. Marvelous. I want to take you from baby to adolescent to mature. Because it's the mature, perfect believers with the gift of helps that do a whole lot more than the babes do with the gift of helps. Okay? Or the adolescents do with the gift of helps. See, and that's the secret, by the way. The adolescents think they're mature, but they're not. <laughs> okay? The mature believers know they're not, so they are. Okay? They know that... I mean, think about it. They know that Jesus is still working in them. And they're humble enough to know that. That's maturity. So let us, as many as are perfect or mature have this attitude. 
Think this way. Think this way. Let us think this way. It's the same phrase we taught in, in the Kenosis chapter of Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Remember that? Okay? You were here for that? You heard that, right? Think this way. That have this attitude is think this way. It's an imperative of phreneo. Think this way. As many let us, Paul includes himself, possibly his team, some of his readers, whoever, as many as are perfect. Whosoever. Okay? If, if you make that claim, think this way. And if you have a different attitude, well, God will reveal that also to you. Mature believers allow the Lord to demonstrate their wrong attitudes. Thank you, Lord. I was expressing a wrong attitude there. Thank you for spotlighting that. I appreciate opening my eyes to see the thinking that must be adjusted. And I welcome every attitude adjustment. Absolutely welcome every attitude adjustment. I would hate to stand before the judgment seat of Christ with the maturity that I had uh, the day I got saved or the day I got ordained or the day I became pastor of Austin Bible Church or yesterday. Okay? Each day is a day to grow more. Tomorrow is a day to grow more. And whatever growth there was, whatever treasure there was, I'm going to forget about that. I'm going to keep reaching forward. Keep reaching forward. And so he shows us these, these attitudes. The definitive, this is subpoint A, the definitive testimony of a teleos mature believer. And so if you, if you can't decide whether you like the term mature, you like the term uh, perfect, maybe just bail on either expression and just call yourself teleos, <laughs> okay? We, we are to be teleos as our Heavenly Father is teleos. And the definitive testimony of a teleos mature believer is to acknowledge being not yet teleo perfected. And this is, the, this is the tension that we hold these things to. Because teleos is an adjective that comes from this same verb. It's an adjective that comes from the verb. So teleo is the verb to perfect, to complete, to equip, to make suitable. And, and, you know, perfection is, is uh, relative to the function. You know, a, a, a hammer is perfect for pounding nails. It's not perfect for other things. Okay? I know, I'm scrambling. <laughs> I, went, I went to a tool place. I should never go to a tool place. But a... Uh, it is not the perfect tool for fixing the sound card in the recording desk computer. <laughs> so, might be. So, when you think about the perfect tool and what the Father does to perfect you in your ministry, in your gift, in your calling, in your work pursuits, think about it. Are we all cookie cutters? Are we all clones? Are we all identical? Am I trying to become Colonel R.B. Theme? Am I trying to become Ralph Braun? 
Who am I trying to become? See, and this is the key, okay? Pastor Cliff wasn't trying to become me. Dan's not trying to become me. Lewis isn't trying to become me. Nobody, please, nobody. Because the Father's work in perfecting me is going to be totally different from the Father's work in perfecting you. Because he's perfecting you for your assignment. For your, the works that were prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And he's going to perfectly suit you for that. And so this verb, it seems like a contradiction. Philippians 3.15 in contrast with verse 12. Because he says, I have not become perfect. I have not, it's a passive tense. So God's the one doing the perfecting. But Paul's experiencing what the Father's perfecting. And, and really, for the Father to be done perfecting is, uh, means that he's, he's leaving this earth. Okay? And so, I don't know how to illustrate or how to, you know, at what point, so think about a different, we have a verb like cooking and a, and a term like cooked. So there's something that's cooking. It's on the stove, it's in the oven, it's wherever, it's cooking. If I'm doing it, it's in the microwave. It's cooking. And then you stop partway through. Is it fair to say that it's cooked? Can you cook it some more? Okay. And, and so God it keeps on teleao perfecting. He continues to teleao perfect, continues to teleao perfect. He's not going to be done teleao perfecting. Which is why Paul is correct in verse 12 when he says, I have not been teleaoed as a completed action. But how much cooking does it take to say something's cooked? Cooked well enough. Cooked a little bit, cooked some, you know. Baby cooked, adolescent cooked, mature cooked. And then beyond mature cooked. Okay? Well done, well, well done. You know, how crispy do you like your bacon? I usually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done, good and faithful, sir. (laughs) But think about (laughs) perfection and maturity. Just, Just don't name names, but just consider the maturest believer you've ever known. Or the maturest believer, if they're still on earth, the maturest believer you still know. And will that believer, can that believer be more mature next year, the year after, down the road? Of course. Because if he stops, if he thinks that he's done, if he's content with his maturity status, he does not have this attitude and it will be shown to him. And if, if, that, if he stops and he's content where he is, I would put forth, he's not as mature as he thinks he is. I think Scripture describes that. That he does not yet know him as he ought to know him. And so uh, this, is, this is the definitive testimony. I think it's definitive. I think, and by definitive, I mean it defines what it means to be mature. It's the definitive testimony. And so... Anyone who says this, that he's still being matured, that's the definitive testimony of the mature one. 
that tells me that he's got a handle on what God's doing and he's, he's on that path. He's on that track. And you want to know who your mature believers are. You want to know who the young men are. You want to know who the babes are. When, when you read First John and he says, I've written to you children, I've written to you little children, I've written to you young men, I've written to you fathers. All right? And you know who you are. Or you should. The idea that we're ignorant of our, of our status? What is that? Who's ignorant of their status? I mean, seriously? Little kids know they're little kids. Little kids know who the older humans are. Okay, there is some confusion in adolescence, and I get it. It's an awkward time of life. I get it. They're going through puberty. They're going through the adjustments. They're going through, and there's things that are very adult while they still have things that are still very childish. And so it's a, it's a, it's a transition. Okay? By the grace of God, they get through it, and their parents get through it, and there's, you know, and then... When they really get through it is when they're married and they start to have their own children. And then, uh, then they start seeing, really, there's nothing like a child to show you where your immaturities are. And you go, wow. Because uh, you've been pretty good at hiding it for some time, but that little kid just put it on display. And you look at that and go, that's me. All right. How did I get on this today? This is something... But he says, and let us, therefore, as many as are teleos, as many as are teleos. And so we reach a stage where we're still in the oven, we're still getting cooked, but we know we are cooked. And we know that, uh, and hopefully, on that basis then, we can start uh, really considering the strong finish. We can really be locked in on the finish line, on the target, on the prize, on the goal. Because in these realms of maturity and in these realms of maturity testing, we ought to be just fixing our eyes on Jesus and locked in on uh, that, hey, the time in front of us is a whole lot shorter than the time behind us. And uh, I've wasted enough. I frittered away enough. The past, the time past is sufficient. Let, let, let that go. Let's just day by day keep reaching forward. So that's the definitive testimony. A couple of subpoints under this. Understand how does this maturity happen? It's the Word of God that does this. The Word of God transforms and equips believers to a mature status and an eternal perfection. See. Some people think, well, it just automatically happens. It just, time goes by and kids grow up. Well, not so. Your metaphor is breaking down here. They don't, time goes by, yes. They don't just grow up, not without eating. Okay, been feeding those kids? Especially the adolescents, a teenage boy, he'll eat you out of house and home. That kid just eats and eats and eats. And skinnier than anything. How does that happen? It's the Word of God taking in doctrine. The milk, the meat, feasting on the Word of God. It transforms and equips believers to a mature status and an eternal perfection. 
Romans 12, 2, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, Ephesians 4, 13, Colossians 1, 28, Colossians 4, 12, Hebrews 5, 4, and I probably could have found some more beyond that to really drive the point home. Sad to me, though, and we'll start, I'll, I'll get a start on this in Romans 12, and we'll pick up here on, on Wednesday. But for folks that think that, well, it's just kind of automatic, No. They don't realize that it takes hard work. It says, be diligent to present yourself, workmen needing not to be ashamed. It's not be lazy to present yourself or just wing it or just show up. It doesn't just automatically happen. It does take diligence. It takes hard work. It takes effort. So therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Stop being conformed to this world. That's the default. If you're not under teaching, world conformity is a, is a given. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, you're here today. Ideally, this is the purpose for why you're here today. You're here to be fed. You're here to be growing. You're here to be renewed. You want the Word of God to transform your being, the renewing of your mind, so that you, uh, you may prove, demonstrate, live out the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's the teleos will of God right there. But it takes the Word of God to do this. And without saturating your mind with truth, if without humbly receiving the word implanted that's able to save your souls, this just doesn't happen. If you are a believer but not a disciple, this doesn't happen. And you find that non-disciple believers are just as worldly as the unbelievers around them. They have similar worldviews. They have similar political thoughts. They have similar earthly thoughts. And you think, where does that come from? Not from the word of God. What Bible are you reading? So, uh, Wednesday night we're going to pick up on this because this is, uh, this is the issue here. And then what are we headed to? Uh, perfection. That's a pretty good standard. The uh, ultimate mature status is the perfect love of God the Father. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then First John, perfect love casts out all fear. Okay? And so we've got those two verses of perfection that we'll look at on Wednesday. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this morning. Thank you, Father, for the blessings of day by day, moment by moment, learning and living, learning and living, and being adjusted by your adjustments as we learn and live. Thank you, Father, for the grace that allows us to minister one to another, to encourage one another, to, um, to bless one another. I thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.